This episode is brought to you by Audible. Get your free audiobook download by visiting audiblepodcast.com slash best. Now, welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Counterspin, The Progressive, The Onion Radio News, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Daily Show, Ring of Fire, The Young Turks, and The Colbert Report. With virtually every poll showing the American public opposed to escalating the war in Afghanistan, prominent pundits and journalists have responded by chastising the White House for taking too long to send more troops. Huh? On ABC, anchor Charles Gibson wondered why Obama was still posing questions. Quote, what new questions are there to be asked after all this time? Close quote. Pentagon correspondent Martha Raddatz replied, well, you would think he'd be through with the questions, Charlie. A Los Angeles Times column headlined, Obama must rethink rethinking Afghanistan, told us that Obama, quote, is in danger of giving deliberation a bad name, close quote. Over at the Washington Post, David Broder actually wrote that since there is no perfect option in Afghanistan, quote, the urgent necessity is to make a decision whether or not it is right, close quote. That sounds an awful lot like Glenn Beck's declaration, believe in something, even if it's wrong, believe in it. So where does all of this come from? Well, it's a given that centrist pundits are generally excited to cheer on U.S. military aggression. But there are some slight cracks in the conventional wisdom on Afghanistan, and that seems to have some media figures worried. The pushback against the White House's Afghanistan decision, then, might not be about the speed with which the decision is made. The real problem is the public, who seem less troubled by the White House holding too many meetings about the war than they are about the wisdom of the war as a whole. Matt Rothschild, the editor of the Progressive Magazine, with my Progressive Point of View, which you can also grab off our website over at Progressive.org. If you closed your eyes during much of the president's speech on Afghanistan and just listened to the words, you easily could have concluded that George W. Bush was still in the Oval Office, or at the very least, that Obama had stolen his speechwriters. Because like Bush, Obama had barely cleared his throat when out came the first mention of September 11th, along with the Bushian line, we did not ask for this fight. Like Bush, Obama looked straight ahead into the camera to address the people of a country he's about to inflict more hell upon and said, I want the Afghan people to understand America seeks an end to this war and suffering. Like Bush, Obama exaggerated the contributions from our allies in this war, which is overwhelmingly American. Like Bush, Obama promised a long war against terrorism, saying the struggle against violent extremism will not be finished quickly and extends well beyond Afghanistan and Pakistan. And like Bush, Obama 
Obama went to great lengths to distort the U.S. historical record, saying laughably that unlike great powers of old, we haven't sought world domination or other nations' resources. The White House speechwriters must have carpal tunnel by now from all their cutting and pasting of Bush's rhetoric into Obama's mouth. And that he didn't choke on these words tells you a lot about Obama. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Bunker Buster prevents a doomed Afghanistan marriage. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Members of an Afghan wedding party believe a U.S. Bunker Buster missile saved the bride and groom from making the biggest mistake of their lives. Though Army officials have apologized for their, quote, unfortunate error in judgment, friends of the dead couple say there is no reason for any sorrow. It is better that they die a quick death than the long, painful one they would endure if their marriage vows were taken. Surviving wedding guests did manage a brief toast to the memory of the bride and groom before sitting down to celebrate with cake and shrapnel. Doyle Redland for the Onion. Desert wind and a perverse desire to win History buried in shame Are the beating drums Celebration guns The fender and the left The last thing they Richard Engel is joining us again tonight in just a moment with some big news that he has obtained exclusively about the war in Afghanistan. I think that this is potentially narrative-changing, course-changing stuff. He broke the story tonight on NBC Nightly News with Brian Williams. We'll have Richard here in person in just a moment to walk us through uh, this document that he has obtained. Because we are talking about Afghanistan, I do want to report first, though, that an American soldier was killed today there under very worrying circumstances. The Defense Department and NATO are not saying anything about this yet other than to confirm that an American was killed in a shooting. But it's reports from Afghan and Italian sources that make this so worrying. They're saying that this American was killed by an Afghan soldier who opened fire on foreign troops with whom he was serving. Two Italian soldiers wounded in the same incident in which one American was killed. Again, the Pentagon and NATO are saying only that they're, that they're investigating this case. But a corps commander with the Afghan National Army told the Associated Press that this Afghan soldier got angry when NATO soldiers tried to keep him away from a helicopter that was about to land. Italian sources reporting that there was no chance the shooting was actually 
accidental, it was intentional. Now, this isn't the first time something like this has happened, not by a long shot. In November, an Afghan policeman shot and killed five British soldiers in Helmand province. In October, two American soldiers killed when someone wearing an Afghan national police uniform opened fire on them in Wardak province during what was supposed to be a joint Afghan-American patrol. In March, an Afghan soldier killed two American servicemen and wounded a third before killing himself. Back in July 2007, an Afghan soldier opened fire and killed four of his own four of his own countrymen and wounded an American advisor. The American was reportedly the target of his rampage. And in May of 2007, an Afghan soldier shot and killed two American soldiers and wounded two others outside a top security prison near Kabul. This is not a comprehensive list of incidents of this kind. We don't have a tally of how many Western troops have been killed by the very forces that are in Afghanistan to train. But incidents like today's and this even abbreviated catalog of past carnage of this type raise questions about the nature of our mission in Afghanistan, even as our president escalates it. The most minimal description of what our forces are there to do is to train and equip Afghanistan's military and police so that they can defend their country themselves. It appears that at times we are arming them and then they are turning around and training that fire on us. There are also new questions today about whether our mission to train Afghan forces, even if it is wise, a question about whether it has a chance of succeeding, at least whether it has a chance of succeeding within the time frame that President Obama has laid out for that mission. With us again tonight is NBC News chief foreign correspondent Richard Engel. He has obtained a sobering new report that's not meant for distribution, but it was prepared for U.S. military commanders by an independent research group. It provides an assessment of Afghan security forces. Richard, it's nice to see you again. It's a pleasure to be here. This report, 25 pages long, was provided for a briefing for the top commander, CENTCOP commander David Petraeus. Also CC'd on this report was the senior commander in Afghanistan, General Stanley McChrystal. And it talks about the readiness of the Afghan security forces, primarily the Afghan National Army. To understand the context of this, the main mission of the United States Army, all of the different uh, forces that are there, is to train the Afghan security forces so that American forces can ultimately leave. That's the main that is point the of what we're doing. number one priority. The reason 30,000 extra troops are going there is to try and create enough security so that an Afghan army can be built. I was told this by numerous commanders. Number one priority. This report says that that priority is facing serious, serious problems and the military knows it. This was an independent study. If I could just I could read a few things. Yeah. It talks about how, uh, this is the opening statement, the ANA, which is Afghan National Army, above company level is not at war. Now, company level means the small unit. So the soldiers on the ground, they're fighting. Above, say, 150 soldiers, anything colonel, general, anyone at that level, according to this report, doesn't believe he's at war. They talk about corruption. This is a quote. Nepotism, corruption, and absenteeism among ANA leaders make success impossible. Change must come quickly. Another line. If Afghan political leaders do not place competent people in charge, no amount of coalition support will suffice in the long term. It's more than sobering. It says that 
this is a serious challenge. It goes on to say that rehabilitating the, the Afghan security forces will not take one year. It will take a, a long time. Do they give a time frame about how long it would take if it was going to happen? No. I've heard that independently from this report that they're, they're thinking about four years. And the, the reason that the dates are important is there is this key the key speech by President Obama, he said he wants to start dialing back the surge 18, roughly 18 months, mm -hmm. the summer of 2011, 18 months from when he announced it. That is impossible, according to this study, to get the Afghan security forces up and running and in place, and even with some sort of semblance. Another key finding in, the, in this report says that the numbers of Afghan troops and police that are on the ground are inaccurate that hmm. some battalions will over-report by 40 to 50 percent, inflate their numbers. It, it, it's a, it's a so in thought. short, it's this internal assessment, which is not meant for distribution, which has been made available to you, which is in itself a story, um, says that what we know about the, the, the current strength of Afghan army and police is wrong, that it's, that it's over, been overstated. It's been overstated. And the timeline that the president laid out, an 18-month timeline for can't training, work. can't work. It explicitly says this can't happen within 18 months. I'll re, uh, there's a line that says it cannot take a year to fix this problem. And they go on and on describing the problems with the leadership. Quote, Many ANA leaders, Afghan National Army leaders, work short days, are often absent, and place personal gain above national survival. So when you hear all of these things, it should raise a degree of concern. If the primary mission, and I've been told the primary mission, is to train the Afghan security forces, it is, a, it is more than a sobering assessment. It shows we, we have a lot of work to do. Well, if this, is, if this reflects the view of the military, this, this says that the military does not believe it is possible this to is, do what President Obama says the mission is in, in, in This was prepared for the military. Yes. The top commanders want, and I've been told this, that General Petraeus wants realistic, not optimistic assessments. Not, that's a quote from a spokesman tonight about this. They say that this report is not complete yet, that it is a report in progress, and they, but they do recognize that there are serious shortcomings in the Afghan security forces. NBC News Chief Foreign Correspondent Richard Engel, as I said, I think, I think this is a big deal in terms of thinking about the why we're fighting there and what for and whether or not it has any chance of success. Uh, you're the only one reporting it. You're the only one who has access to this information. Thanks for sharing it with us tonight. It's a pleasure to be Appreciate here. Appreciate it. I just need to try to settle down. Oh, a million faces pass my way. Audible is supporting this episode, which I love because I've been using Audible for years. They have tens of thousands of titles, including audiobooks, newspapers, magazines, radio, TV, and premium podcasts. For this audience, I recommend they have The Heavy Hitters, My Life by Bill Clinton, The Audacity of Hope by Barack Obama, but my personal favorites are like Lies and the Lying Liars Who Tell Them, Al Franken's latest book before he became a senator, and America the Audiobook, put together by the writers of The Daily Show. As a listener of this show, you can get a free audiobook to try out this service by visiting audiblepodcast.com slash best. You have to go to that special URL. That's how they know that I sent you and that you deserve a free audiobook. Audiblepodcast.com slash best. The host the managing editor of HDNet's Dan Rather reports. This week's report is called Afghanistan, One Last Chance. In some ways, this is the real Afghanistan. Small village up in the mountains. Artillery fire 
heard a little in the distance. This is the way most, quote, urban Afghans live. This is what it is. Here, there are high mountains all around. Anybody who seeks to cause trouble has most of the high ground because it stretches seemingly forever. Actually, it looked a little bit like Camden, New Jersey, quite frankly. <laughs> Please welcome back to the program, Dan Rather. Nice to see you, sir. How many trips have you made to Afghanistan? Do you even keep track anymore? I think this is my 11th trip since 1980. It's like a, what it, like a gypsy put a curse on you. <laughs> you just have to keep going back there. Uh, I keep you, learning. When you went in 1980, uh, you reported one of the first guys on the Mujahideen. Right. And that led uh, to, I guess, uh, Joe Wilson's war, the, the getting uh, America a little bit more involved. Charlie he, Wilson's war. Charlie Wilson's war. Right. I'm sorry. Joe Wilson yeah. was the other Wilson that... <laughs> <laughs> different war, different country. Uh, so you were there when the Russians were there. Right. The Russians had just invaded. How different was their situation from our situation? And please tell me it was different. <laughs> well, I will tell you it was different. There are similarities, but it was different. Uh, number one, the Russians came and the Afghans knew it to extend their empire. They intended to make Afghanistan part of the Soviet Union. And the Mujahideen, the resistance uh, Afghans, knew that. Big difference. Today, most Afghans who know about the American presence, keep in mind what a vast country this is, mostly rural, they know that we don't want to stay there. We don't seek to have Afghanistan become part of U.S. territory. They know we want to get the hell out of there as quickly as we possibly can. They're somewhat worried about it. So that's, that's a major difference. Another major difference is while the Soviets had their, their version of what we call soft power, uh -huh. that is, of going in communities, building schools, and that sort of thing, it was nothing compared to what we have. And I think, John, one of the things I took from this last trip is how much we, the United States and our allies, have increased the use of so-called soft power, State Department people, uh, USAID people, civilian workers. I was there a year ago at the end of 2009. Right. No comparison with the amount of soft power that we have now as to what we had then. But, but again, the, the mission change to this idea of soft power, you're talking about a country, the literacy rate must be, what, 10 percent, 20 percent? No, no, it's not 20. 10 percent is the, the official literacy rate. I happen to think it's somewhat below that. 10 percent of the population. Below 10 percent. Below 10 percent. Less than one out of 10 people. That's correct. Did you see what I did there? Yeah, I did. <laughs> you're good at math. You've always been really good. Thank you very much. <laughs> How in the world... Can our mission turn to a, a majority soft power? The, the amount of, of transformation that would need to take place in that country to establish the sort of the, the bulkhead of educational progress and uh, progress for women, you're talking about over generations. It may take over generations. We can have no illusions about what we're attempting there. We don't intend to stay as first we're, we're, We've been given 18 months. Well... I think that's kind of soft 18 months, if you will. <laughs> well, we may, we may be that and generations, yes, I would say there seems to be a disparity. <laughs> well, it seems to be a disparity because there is a disparity. But I will say, John, that I can only give you the benefit of having been there and been on the ground reporting. Right. First of all, both our people engaged in the soft power, that is, the diplomats, the civilian workers, the aid workers, and our military people on the ground where we were, they believe it can be done. 
You and I might have our doubts, and a number of people in the audience have their doubts. But uh, I, this is where I think the reporting about the Afghan war, particularly in recent months, right. has been well behind the curve and, frankly, not very good. But what is it they're trying to, you know, when we say this can be done, what is this? Right, because this the is, sense I get is even 30,000 more troops gives us, what, 90,000 in the country? About, about that. The country is gigantic. We have these forward operating bases right. that take so much of our men and women's time, effort, lives, and, and money to supply these forward operating bases that are only being attacked because they're out there where the Taliban are in rural areas. If you pull them back to the cities, there wouldn't be any more fighting out there. Well, excellent point. And we have changed strategy. One can argue whether the strategy would work. Beginning this last summer, we said, listen, we're changing from fight them anywhere they are, and if we engender more fighting, we'll fight them. Our strategy changed. The strategy is now don't try to fight everywhere. Select certain areas, uh, populated areas, and a well-populated area in Afghanistan, say 5, 10,000 center. Center on that, for example, we went to a forward operating base, if you will, uh, which was called Bostik, which it's the line in Kunar province. Everything above that, we have said, Taliban, have at it, if you want it. Below that, what we're trying to do is center now on the population areas and build some governance from below. It's a Herculean undertaking. But look how this looks in America. Okay, so we go in there, we're attacked, we go in there to clear out Al-Qaeda. Now we're talking about, well, we're going to protect the population centers so that we can educate their people. How much Al-Qaeda is there anymore? How many Al-Qaeda are there? Well, not many Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan itself now. The, the official estimate is maybe 100 Al-Qaeda. But this is... So 100 important. people? 100 Al-Qaeda. 100 people? In, in Afghanistan. But in Pakistan, Pakistan is now the epicenter of this war. That's where most of the Al-Qaeda people are, and they come across a very porous border and then go back. Wait, if we've already gotten it, if we've gotten it down to 100, we win. We've won. Well, can't we, 100, you can't do better than 100. There's probably 100 of them in Queens, for God's sakes. That can't be right. Well, that's what they think. Oh, for God's sakes. All right. Well, I, uh, uh, I wish you all the best, and it, it, it's so nice to see you again, and I'm glad you're still out there uh, doing the reporting on the ground, because I won't. Uh, Go with me the next time. You'll learn a lot. I, I would. I would learn that I'm a fearful little man. No. I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll give you the helmet I wore this time. I didn't like that helmet at all. But that helmet is not fashionable. I'll give I you actually that have helmet. An, an armored yarmulke, so I don't need a... <laughs> uh, Dan Rather reports. It airs on HDNet every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Dan Rather. Unfortunately, uh, we seem to have a you know perpetual war uh, machine uh, in our country. Uh, you know, there, there's really been hardly a time over the last um, I don't know how many 
decades uh, that we have not been in one war or another, and, and some of them, you know, I, I can say make some sense, but not this one, not uh, Afghanistan. It makes no more sense to me than Iraq. Uh, what, what is it about Afghanistan that just causes you the most uh, angst? Well, I, I, I think the most uh, obvious thing is that our stated goal is to defeat al-Qaeda, uh, the, the terrorist uh, network uh, that struck us uh, in uh, 2001. Uh, yet al-Qaeda is not in Afghanistan. <laughs> uh, in fact, it's mostly in Pakistan, and it also has uh, metastasized, uh, having strongholds now in uh, Indonesia, Morocco, Yemen, Somalia, uh, even in England and France. It has un enclaves there. This is not one network. It's, it's now many networks, and to deal with it uh, is really uh, g going to become harder uh, by uh, our increased military activity uh, in Afghanistan. Are you moved by the idea that 30,000 troops, new troops, are going to be able to expand and train the Afghan police to where in a couple of years they can secure their own country? I mean, does that this really make sense? This is the great uh, joke, of course. Uh, yeah. uh, I mean, these the, the so-called uh, troops and uh, police uh, forces in uh, Afghanistan are notoriously uh, incompetent, uh, corrupt, uh, disloyal. Uh, they, they have no will to fight the war that we want them to fight. Uh, and the notion that we're going to train them in 18 months uh, to two years uh, is is ludicrous. As, as nearly all independent uh, military analysts, uh, including many still in the Pentagon, uh, concede uh, that it would take at least 10 years to train them. And by the way, Pap, uh, that's uh, 10 years at at least $4 billion a year uh, to us taxpayers. Uh, How is the training. it? You know, look, we, we both can agree on one thing. That is that Obama is a smart man. He's, uh, but but I've sat in so many classes with law professors, and he, he a constitutional law professor, for example. I, I it almost I can there almost used to be parody that we do of a constitutional law professor, and that is, let me think of every little little aspect of this issue and then make my decision. Sometimes it gets them so close to the issue that they miss the big decision. How how did Obama missed this. What what happened? Uh, well, I, I think it's not unlike uh, his his Wall Street bailout policy, uh, which you and I have talked a lot about, uh, and that is he just uh, he seems to have a, a sort of Bill Clinton esque uh, uh, desire to uh, to uh, get along with uh, people in authority. Uh, and so, you know, he he let the bankers design uh, the Wall Street bailout, uh, which of course has worked against the workday majority of our people. And he is allowing uh, the the generals and the uh, and the uh, uh, war hawk uh, so-called uh, think tank experts uh, define his Afghan uh, policy. Uh, almost like almost like by saying, you know, let let me let me yield to authority, and by yielding to authority, I'm going to have more general acceptance of who I am. I mean, that's that that criticism that you just gave is exactly what we heard for so long about Bill Clinton on things like CAFTA and NAFTA and you know his love affair with uh, with the establishment, and, and th this is what this is the first time that this is becoming really evident with Obama. Even though we saw you know the Geithner appointment, the Summers appointment, uh, we saw the you know Eric Holder appointment. We knew that those were bad appointments from the very beginning. But it was the establishment. So so you so you're saying that maybe he's sucked in by that same establishment mentality. I'm 
afraid so. Uh, he's just not as strong a president uh, as as I thought he was going to be, and not as strong a president as he still can be. Uh, and to, he keeps trying to appease those who opposed him in the election. Well, what about getting along with those of us who elected him? Well, that's what I keep saying. I mean, 65 million people showed up uh, to, to elect him. Out of that, 24, 25 million of them were 18 to 30, 34-year-olds. And if I look at your numbers, 61% of that group says that the Afghanistan's a bad idea. And it is a bad idea. They are absolutely right. The public is against this. Common sense is against this. Uh, yet Obama is persisting in pushing it. And now I, I think we've, what you've touched on with those numbers of young people, for example, is a very important thing, Pat. We keep going to wars that uh, the vast majority of us, let's say 98, 99 percent of us, have no role in. Uh, we don't have to go to war ourselves. Our, our loved ones don't go to that war. Uh, and we don't even have to pay for it. Uh, because Obama insists, as George W. did, on putting it uh, on our grandchildren's uh, credit cards. I'm Matt Rothschild, the editor of the Progressive Magazine, with my Progressive Point of View, which you can also grab off our website over at Progressive.org. I went to a protest in Madison, Wisconsin yesterday against Obama's escalation in Afghanistan. Only 57 people showed up. It was a great group, and it was good to share our dismay and our defiance in public, and I always like seeing the creativity of the signs at protests. The best one I saw yesterday was, Here We Go, Afghanistan. But why were there only 57 of us in Madison, Wisconsin, one of the most politically active communities in the country? It's not that people support Obama's escalation. 55% of the American public's against it. More than 80% of Dems oppose it, and probably more in Madison. It's that people who voted for Obama can't bring themselves yet to protest him. Had Bush made the same announcement Obama did, there would have been 570 people at this protest and thousands more in bigger cities. But because it was Obama, most protesters stayed home. This has got to change. Obama has just decided that it's okay to have hundreds more U.S. soldiers die for a lost cause. We can't take that lying down or staying home. We've got to get into the streets in numbers greater than 57. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it.
Back with Jim Hightower, we're talking about Afghanistan and how how in the world uh, how in the world does does Obama believe that by going to Afghanistan that he's going to attract the middle that he's going to attract those Republicans who hate him who have have nothing in common with him or the conservative independents that absolutely they despise him they, they they've turned into teabagger crowd is is part of it is his belief that that you know he can overcome the teabag mentality by going to war I mean well, I, I even kinda, in the even in the Congress path uh, he keeps trying to do bipartisan legislation compromise basic principles, uh, again, on the Wall Street bailout, on health care reform, now on Afghanistan, in the notion that somehow or other those Republicans are going to come vote for him, and, and yet bills that we are able to pass come with not a single Republican supporting them. Never have, never have. Well, you know, one thing I see a parallel, you're a little bit of an FDR historian, so am I. I remember my history books telling me that um, FDR did the same thing his first couple of years. He, he thought, okay, well, I can bring the bankers around. I can bring the war machine around. I can bring the real right-wing mama, well, I call them mama's, mama's boys crazy, the, the, uh, you know, the inheritance crowd. I can bring them ar- around. And he, he, he finally figured out he can't. And, and that's when he got mad. I'm hoping maybe that'll happen here. I'm hoping that maybe he'll understand on something like Afghanistan. He was listening to the same crowd that everybody's listening to, the military complex. And it's uh, – what do you think? I mean, am well, I being too optimistic? <laughs> no, it's not a matter of optimism, really. It's a matter of, uh, of organization and agitation uh, and uh, uh, mobilizing. Uh, the, the only change that, that we can get uh, is going to come from the outside. Uh, and we've seen that Obama is only going to be as good as we make him be. And I know some, you know, progressives are, are just wringing their hands and, you know, uh, just uh, in angst about all this. But instead of wringing your hands, put your hands uh, to work. Uh, we have to be the outside counterforce uh, to uh, the insidious insiders who are perverting uh, this presidency uh, to essentially a, a, a Republican-style uh, presidency. You know, we, we've spent too much time kind of cranking back in the lazy boy uh, pap, uh, saying, oh, well, Obama's in there now. He will take care of it. But, you know, we're doing 12-ounce elbow bends uh, while he's uh, pursuing policies that are the exact opposite of the progressive agenda that people voted for uh, in 2008 and still want. Uh, so we have got to so We've what do we do, Joe? I mean, yeah, what do you do? I mean, you've got represent. You've got uh, David Obi says, "Look, yeah. let's let's come up with a war tax on the richest." That's right. not a bad idea. Barbara Lee wants Congress to say, "Look, we we want to be very specific about the purse strings on escalation and an exit strategy." Jim McGovern says, "Let's let's let's look at a specific mandated exit strategy." Th- but these are the only p- voices I'm hearing. Well, that's that's why we have to get noisy uh, on their behalf. Uh, and, and this is a time when we really do uh, have to be in in the streets and on the internet uh, and grabbing our members of Congress by the short hairs. You know, n- not only going to Washington, but more importantly, uh, grabbing them uh, where you live. Uh, your member of Congress uh, has an address, has an office. Yeah, uh, yeah but he's a he's a bumpkin moron. Yeah, I but don't go know. see him. Yeah. Make the demand. <laughs> you know, if you don't make the demand, no change is going to come. And we've got to start with that and make a lot of noise that the 
that the media cannot ignore. Uh, you know, you mentioned the, the teabag bunch. Uh, you know, think of the amount of press they got with what amounts to I don't, not even a half of one percent of the American uh, people. Yeah, uh, old, and we got old to stand shut-ins up. that don't work. I mean, exactly. Yeah. And we do have these members of Congress, including the Progressive Caucus, uh, and I would urge people to 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 work with them. They've got tremendous leadership uh, in the House, uh, and uh, to to get behind them, connect with them, which I think is at progressivecaucus.gov uh, and, uh, and, and let's team up because the Congress has to make the difference here. They okay, well, have the authority, the Jim, constitutional responsibility to stand up. Jim, let me, let's talk about some specifics. July poll found that almost 60% of the Pakistanis share as many of the al-Qaeda attitudes towards the U.S. as those who support the al-Qaeda attack. Yeah. Uh, okay, so the reason that's important is because we know so many of the, uh, the, the real threats are holed up in Pakistan. We we know also that the Pakistani officials, that they're nurturing, the, they're, they're nurturing this process. They're saying, yeah, in, in words, it looks like they're, they're, they want to do something about al-Qaeda. They really don't. The other fact that you talk about uh, in, in, when you talk about this issue is that the Taliban is not even a surrogate for al-Qaeda, and the Taliban is who we're focusing on there in Afghanistan, correct? The Taliban, there's by no means, it's not even, a, it's not what you would consider a monolithic group. They're made up, as you point out, they're made up of, uh, you know, farmers and Soviet uh, freedom fighters, roving bandits of uh, uh, opportunists, you know, opportunists in the drug traffic trade. Uh, it's, it, how do you fight that? I mean, it's not like they're dressed up in the same uniform and we can fight it. It's so amorphous. How do we ever fight it? Why don't we come back to the United States and guard our borders? Guard our borders, and then also have a uh, a true uh, multinational uh, diplomacy uh, effort uh, that that really does uh, work uh, not only in Afghanistan and Pakistan, but in those other nations uh, that are that are headed in uh, in a terrorist uh, direction or have a faction within them that is doing that. Yet we consider we continue to pursue a delusional uh, policy of just outrageous hubris in the world. You know, you mentioned uh, uh, how the Pakistanis uh, really don't support us. Well, we're trying to make them take on our war when, in fact, the thing that is in their national interest or is perceived to be is their con conflict with India. Mm -hmm. They're more interested in that. And also in Afghanistan, we're trying to convince uh, the Afghan people to support a centralized government under this crook, uh, Hamid Karzai, uh, when in fact uh, that country has no history of supporting a centralized government. It's a tribal uh, form of government that they have. Uh, do, do and you they know do have a democratic process, by the way, within that tribal form. But rather than working with what is, we're trying to force them into our little box, and that's not working. Aren't you, most, aren't you left completely cold when we hear that argument uh, from the Obama administration, the same thing we heard about uh, Iraq, and that is, gee, we, we need need to beef up the democratic process in, in Afghanistan. Well, hell no, we don't need to beef up the democratic process. We don't have anything common with uh, Afghanistan. And to make that argument under when a guy like Ahmed Karzai is in charge is just, it's almost laughable. This well, is not, it's, it's no more about beefing up democracy in, in Iraq than it is in Afghanistan. I hate that he bought that argument and, is at, and yeah. those words are coming out of his mouth. 
well, you know, I was born at night, but it wasn't that night. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. the notion that there is any democracy uh, in, uh, in in terms of a national election in uh, Afghanistan uh, was disproved uh, by the corrupt stealing of their presidential election by the guy who we're we're banking our support on, Hamid Karzai. Why should one more American die for Karzai? So who's gaining ground in this fight? They are. This episode is brought to you by Groupon, and I promise that you're going to be thanking me for telling you about it. Groupon uses the economic buying power of large groups of people as leverage to get huge discounts, usually between 50 to 80% off great services, restaurants, activities, and more in 45 major cities across the U.S. You only buy what you want, and you pay nothing for the privilege of being alerted of new great deals every day. Support this podcast by visiting bestoftheleft.com and clicking the Groupon button so they know I sent you. See how it works, reap the benefits, and thank me later. I can finally see that you're right there beside me. Now, here is someone who is just as mad about Afghanistan as I am about Bernanke. Uh, that's Michael Moore. And he was on with Larry King on CNN, and he was not having Obama's speech on Afghanistan and his new policy. Um, to quote an old friend, let's go to Ed Reed again as to what Michael Moore thinks about the surge in Afghanistan. Hell no! All right, now you're going to get that sense right here. Let's go. The president didn't listen to you, Michael. You wanted to withdraw. He did not take your advice. What do you think the result will be? I feel very bad for him. I feel, um, I feel even worse uh, for our troops. <clears throat> and um, I feel um, a real sadness uh, for the parents of those soldiers um, of ours over the next 18 months who will not come back home. Um, and I think many will ask, for what reason uh, did they die? Not to stop Al-Qaeda, Larry, because there is no Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. Our own CIA says there's less than 100 Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. What are we doing in Afghanistan? This is absolutely insane. When President Obama tonight says that, that uh, we were attacked from Afghanistan, uh, I don't think so. I think that 15 of the 19 hijackers, terrorists, killers of 9-11, they were from Saudi Arabia. In fact, there wasn't one Afghanistan citizen amongst them. The only thing Afghanistan had to do with it, they had some monkey bars in the desert that they, they, these guys trained on. I don't know. I've seen the video. But for that, I mean, it's just absolutely insane. Larry, we have been in this war for twice as long now as the U.S. was in World War II. Twice as long as World War II. It, it, we defeated uh, Hitler and 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 tojo and mussolini in half the time it's taken us to find osama bin laden now if he'd come on tv tonight and said we were going in there to you know with with special forces to try and capture the killers that's a good idea but that's not what he's talking about he's talking about now we're gonna have a hundred thousand troops there to find these these killers who aren't even there absolutely really? insane 
I mean, he, look, he makes a great point. I, I know it's similar to the points that I'm making, but I love this passion on it. He's like, look, let me get this right. We're sending out 100,000 guys to kill less than 100 al-Qaeda guys in Afghanistan. It's absolutely insane. That can't be the reason. And, and he says, look, he, it's not like he's a softy. It's like, use special forces to kill him. Let's be smarter. That's what I say. Look, it worked in Somalia. We landed. We killed the guys, one of their top leaders in, the, in that region of Africa. And, we, in fact, we grabbed a couple of them. Then they yell out, why are you grabbing me? We grabbed them and we brought them, and we're interrogating them now. It worked. Special forces work. So why do we have all these guys on the ground? Look, the only answer I got is that it's not about Afghanistan, that he's using those troops to pressure Pakistan. And maybe the implication is, hey, Pakistan, if you don't go get these guys that are in, you know, Waziristan, which is in northern Pakistan, that will do. Now, if that's the case, well, then it's a little more defensible. But I don't, you know, maybe they're doing it behind the scenes, but they're certainly not doing it out in the open. And what they're doing out in the open doesn't make any sense. The guy who's going to explain it a little better now, let's go to Feingold. Uh, Senator Feingold's on with Wolf Blitzer on CNN. Let's go to clip number five here, and he's going to go into that same exact point here. Uh, let's talk a little bit why you oppose what the president is doing. What's wrong with his uh, logic? Well, it just doesn't add up for me. The president says we're doing this, we're adding 30,000, 35,000 troops to finish the job. And I ask the question, what job? Because the president has been so eloquent in pointing out that our issue is fighting al-Qaeda. The argument falls apart when you realize that al-Qaeda does not have its headquarters in Afghanistan anymore. It is headquartered in Pakistan. It is active in Somalia, in Yemen, North Africa, affiliates of it in Southeast Asia. Why does it make sense to have a huge ground presence in Afghanistan to deal with a small al-Qaeda contingent when we don't do that in so many other countries where we're actually having some success without invading the country? and attacking those that are well, part of al-Qaeda. It doesn't make sense. Here's how the president responds to that. I'll play this clip from his speech last night. We must deny al-Qaeda a safe haven. We must reverse the Taliban's momentum and deny it the ability to overthrow the government. I guess the main point he's trying to make is if, if uh, the U.S. were to lose, let's say, in Afghanistan, just w walk away, all those al-Qaeda operatives who have crossed the border into Pakistan would simply go back to a pre-9-11 situation that the Taliban would control and give them that safe haven in Afghanistan. That's an incredibly uh, unlikely scenario in my view, uh, that al-Qaeda would find that to be the ideal place to return to. The notion that the Taliban would automatically welcome them with open arms is questionable in light of the fact that in the first place they came into Afghanistan with the Taliban's blessing because they had a lot of money to pass around. Now they're hiding in caves in Pakistan. And I'm wondering why the president thinks he shouldn't have uh, ground forces and troops in all countries all over the world that are not only potential, but current safe havens for al-Qaeda. Why aren't we doing that approach of a huge land presence in those places, as in northern Africa, in Yemen, in Somalia? It doesn't make sense. Why this one place? Did you where it's not the place that al-Qaeda actually is headquartered in. All right, so look, there's something I slightly disagree with Feingold on when he says uh, that he doesn't think that al-Qaeda will necessarily go back into Afghanistan if we uh, leave. I think they, given the pressure they're getting from the Pakistani army at this point, they probably, a, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them probably would, right? Now, whether the Taliban would reaccept them is a different issue. I agree with Feingold there. But the thing is, it's as he his other point is overwhelming. 
He says, look, they're already have safe haven in a place like Somalia, for example. Uh, and then they have very strong, you know, branches in Yemen, Southeast Asia, and all over the world. But Somalia is the best example. So since they have some safe haven there, we had two choices. We could have done the special forces attack, which is what we did, or we could have invaded and occupied Somalia. Now, of those two choices, what makes more sense? No one in their right mind would say invading and occupying Somalia makes more sense. Obviously, our targeted special forces operation against al-Qaeda leadership was a much better idea. So why couldn't, even if, in the worst case scenario, some of al-Qaeda leaks back into Afghanistan, if we leave in a couple of years, why couldn't we do special forces strikes and drone strikes against those guys anyway? If, the, if President Obama is saying we absolutely need 100,000 boots on the ground in Afghanistan to go after 100 al-Qaeda guys, well, don't we need 100,000 boots on the ground in Somalia to go after the 100 al-Qaeda guys over there, or maybe even more? Or how about Pakistan? Or about, how about all these countries? Obviously, he doesn't think that that's the right approach for all those other places. I think the reason he's still in Afghanistan is because we were in Afghanistan in the first place. Otherwise, there's no real distinction between Somalia and Afghanistan. And as Michael Moore points out, the, the people who attacked us weren't, quote-unquote, from there. They're mainly Saudi Arabian. Some Egyptian, 15 out of the 19 hijackers, were Saudi Arabian. Uh, they just happened to be in Afghanistan for that period of time. Now they're in Pakistan. By that logic, you cannot deny that what we really need is boots on the ground in, in Pakistan. And we're not willing to do that. So what, why are we sending him to Afghanistan? You come back to that question every time, because there is no good answer for that. And unfortunately, President Obama's speech did not provide one either. There ain't no reason things are this way. It's how they always been and they intend to stay. I can't explain why we live this way. We do it every day. Preachers on the podium speaking of saints, prophets on the sidewalk begging for change, old ladies laughing from the fire escape, cursing my name. I got a basket full of lemons and they all taste the same, a window and a pigeon with a broken wing. You can spend your whole life working for something just to have it taken away. People walk around pushing back their desks. Wearing paychecks like necklaces and bracelets Talking about nothing, not thinking about death Every little heartbeat, every little breath People walk a tightrope on a razor's edge Carrying their hurt and hatred and weapons It could be a bomb or a bullet or a pen Or a thought or a word or a sentence There ain't no reason things are this way My guest tonight is here to talk about Afghanistan then I assume she'll go to Afghanistan to talk about here. Please welcome CBS Chief Foreign Affairs Correspondent, Laura Logan. Thank you. Thank you very much. Laura, nice to see you again. Thank Thanks you. for coming Thank back. You. Now, um, madam, the last time you were here, I had you on because I wanted to be mad at Barack Obama, but I couldn't make my decision about what to be mad about because he hadn't made the decision about committing troops to Afghanistan. So you're there now? Now he has committed troops to Afghanistan. Why should I be angry now? 
Why should you be angry at the president? Yes, because I've got a couple of ideas. Number one, only 30,000. McChrystal asks for 40,000. Is that going to be enough? Well, the idea is that he's going to NATO to get extra troops from the European capitals, our allies. Mm -hmm. The Europeans haven't had a fighting spirit since WW2. We whipped it out of it. <laughs> it's our fault, really. But he's, he's putting in 30,000 more troops, and he's already saying when they're going to come out 18 months later. That's not a war. That's a layover. Well, <laughs> Just send them to O'Hare. You know, this has been one of the annoying aspects of the debate post-Obama's speech. Are you right? calling me annoying? No. Because <laughs> you would not be the I first can. woman. <laughs> Because everyone is like, oh my God, there's a deadline, and then oh my God, there's not a deadline, and is there a deadline, isn't there? It's very clear. The president said the plan is to begin withdrawing troops by 2011. He could take three guys out. That's a withdrawal, right? He didn't say I'm going to take them all out by 2011. He said you just upset 30,000 people. <laughs> well, <laughs> he no, said it will be conditions-based, and that's very simple. It's based on the conditions on the ground. Why is everyone making such a political, you know, mess about all? Because of this? it makes for good TV. Now, <laughs> some people say the plan is, is too hard. Some say the plan is too easy. Um, I, I, I'm beginning to think the plan might be a little too complicated. This is, this is Richard Engel, your, your, your colleague. Yes. Okay. Richard's a good guy. He's a friend of the show. He, he released this. It was some sort of PowerPoint presentation mm -hmm. given to the Joint Chiefs. This is our plan in Afghanistan. Right. You've been covering Afghanistan for seven years. Is this complex enough? Do you understand this? This was deliberately to confuse the enemy, clearly, right? It must be. Well, it says working draft down here. So they're going to lay in some of the details later. Well, you know, what you said about the complexity, that's the only thing I would bother to take away from this, right? It's so complicated. And that's why it took the president so long to make a decision. I mean, look at this. You can't work this out in five minutes, right? And it's amazing he did it in a few months. I can dismiss it in five minutes, but... <laughs> But that, that's, that's all I get paid to do. Now, can, why can't we just win in Afghanistan with predator drones? Because that's a ridiculous argument. How do predators work? It is. I'm sorry. I'm annoying and I'm ridiculous. How do predator drones work? You've you got to know where to go, and that's based on on-the-ground intelligence. If you don't have people on the ground, and you don't have good intelligence coming from the ground, you might as well put your predator drone over Hollywood and just pick and choose who you want to kill. Why are you so outspoken in thinking that force is the right thing to do? I didn't say force was the right thing to do. Oh. You're putting words in my mouth. Oh, but, oh, okay. <laughs> when did I say that? I enjoyed doing that. <laughs> You're expecting your second child right now. I am. Are, are, you, are you going over there as an expectant mother? I was four months pregnant with the Marines in Helmand. Is, wait. Just a few weeks that ago. That would be an extremely <laughs> difficult birth if you were over there and going into labor. Why, why, why do you... Well, they have do, good why do, you, why do you enjoy... Do you enjoy going into those situations of danger? You know, it's really... It's not about enjoying it. I mean, yes, it's fascinating. And when you're on the absolute extremes of human existence... That's a fascinating thing, and you discover so much about yourself and about humanity and about the way the world works. But I think really for me it's a constant reminder of how fortunate you are in your daily life. I never turn on, I mean, it's rare for me to turn on a light or sit down to a good meal at home without having that thought of, wow, you know, this really means something to me because I know what it is not to have it. And so, I mean, I think that's a very, I mean, it's a very selfish kind of, of of answer, but it's really 
I, I mean, for me, my life is it's always... It's selfish a... to put yourself in situations where you don't have running water or lights? <laughs> well, but you... have got a strange idea of indulgence. <laughs> but you're doing that so that you can better understand what life is about. It makes my... I mean, it enriches my life. I'm very fortunate to have had those experiences. Now, having been over there for so many years, there's a lot of talk now, Afghanistan is uh, Obama's Vietnam, yeah. okay? We thought Iraq was Bush's Vietnam. It turned out to be Bush's Korea, okay? <laughs> what other war will Afghanistan turn out to be? Because we can't ever call any war its own war. It has to look like another war from the past. I mean, will it be the Spanish-American War? You know, the ridiculous thing about all these comparisons, it's the graveyard of empires, it's Obama's Vietnam, it's all that crap, right? Mm -hmm. It's a family show, madam. The, <laughs> the truth is that when the Vietnam War ended, the Viet Cong didn't follow the U.S. back home. And that's the big difference here. Go, don't, you don't have to listen to one president or another president. It's not political. Listen to bin Laden. Go and read what he has said. We will follow the United States. We will attack the homeland again. We will use nuclear weapons. We will use biological warfare. I mean, it's very simple. Everything al-Qaeda has ever said they were going to do before, they've done. There's no reason to doubt his intentions. General McChrystal says the key to winning in Afghanistan is capturing and killing bin Laden. Why hasn't someone thought of that before? <laughs> Well, that's a question I've asked every commanding general in Afghanistan every year since 9-11. And what's the answer? Well, Oops. They haven't been able to. I think for a few years they even stopped looking. It was incredible to me. But year after year after year, you'd ask these questions, and after a while I realized, my God, they're not even looking for him anymore. Thanks for listening, everybody. So as undoubtedly, at least a few of you remember, just a couple of shows ago when I came back from the break, I said that I had, I felt like I had forgotten how to work. And, you know, I, to be honest, I thought that it just felt like I had forgotten how to work, but, you know, I'd worked my way through it and I put out a show. And I was like, yeah, I'm done. And that's felt right. But I didn't realize until today how much I had actually forgotten because I just forgot to do stuff. And didn't realize. So I've got a lot of catch-up work to do, starting off with thanking members. I haven't thanked any members in, like, a month or something, just, you know. But I, I, I completely forgot to thank members for the last couple of shows, so I have uh, some makeup to do on that. I want to go all the way back, and I want to thank the, the earliest member who hasn't yet been thanked, Stephen M., who signed up on July 31st. Then a couple others, Benjamin M. signed up August 21st, Stephen J. signed up August 31st, and Ronald R. signed up November 16th. So that gets us caught up. Thanks to all of you guys. Now we're caught up, at least to today. And now, for today's members, I want to thank Beverly Smith, who signed up on October 24th for a, uh, a full-year membership. Thanks, Beverly. And then wanted to uh, mention Kevin T., who just signed up on uh, January 2nd. Wanted to thank him for presumably having just heard that my donations were way down for December when I wasn't producing as many shows. People weren't, you know, wouldn't even cross people's minds to donate to, to this show, and that had a huge impact on, on my income last month. 
So uh, Kevin T wanted to step up and help fill in that gap, and he signed up for uh, above and beyond the minimum membership level, uh, and he signed up for a full year as well. So uh, big thanks to all of those members who, of course, keep the show going. I couldn't do it without you, as as demonstrated so starkly uh, by December, without uh, new memberships coming in and uh, and individual donations it has a pretty severe impact on my personal income. And if that were to continue, uh, then I wouldn't be able to do the show. It's just uh, mathematically that simple. One other thing I've been forgetting to mention, of course, is that we have a Best of the Left app for your iPhone or iPod Touch available in the App Store. And, you know, probably because of the holidays, someone out there listening probably got a brand new iPhone or an iPod Touch went looking around in the iTunes store and wanted to to discover podcasts for the first time, they probably found this show and they still don't know because I have been failing to mention that we have an app available complete with bonus material for every episode. So, of course, as I do in every show, I want to mention that the the bonus content for this show is actually Jank Huger actually doing one of those debates with a couple of talking heads on Countdown. So since that was kind of a a mixed blessing for a couple of different hosts from a couple of shows that I regularly pull from all in one clip. I I pulled that and just didn't end up having time to use it. So that is bonus content in the app for today. And then finally, the last bit of house cleaning to do is to mention podcast alley. Uh, Thanks to everyone who's voted so far. We have, uh, as of this moment received enough votes to get us into the top 10, but not nearly enough to keep us in the top 10 for the rest of the month. So if you haven't already, please head over to uh, Podcast Alley and vote for the Best of the Left. There's a link on my website, bestofleft.com, which makes it really easy to, to vote. It takes you right to the voting page for this show. And doing that actually does make a big difference. If if a podcast is in the top 10 at Podcast Alley, we I really do receive new listeners who find us through there so help spread the word of the show and the progressive goodness that lies within um, just by doing it 30 seconds of your time to vote over at podcast alley each month so that is it for today i'm keeping it real short but i just want to say that in the final comments that uh, there seems to be more and more always to say right at the end So I have to have it all written down because I couldn't possibly remember all this stuff, but it's all very important. So listen closely. You can support the show by spreading the word to five friends or all your friends, of course, uh, becoming a member or just donating five bucks. If that's all you have, Uh, leave a five star review in iTunes. And of course, as, as I said, vote every month at Podcast Alley. You can take our listener survey and you can help the show financially without Uh, spending an extra dime yourself if you just do your regular shopping that you would do anyways through the amazon.com search box on my website and you don't have to remember all those things i just said because you you can actually now check out the support the show box which is just a really convenient visual way to see all the ways you can support the show which is right on the right hand side of the website Please stay subscribed to the show in one of a variety of ways. I have lots of ways you can subscribe. I have an enhanced and an MP3-only format, all available in iTunes or any other podcatcher you like. You can access the show on your smartphone via Stitcher.com or, as I said, your iPhone or iPod Touch via the new app available in the App Store. 
And you know what? You can even just sign up to be notified of every new episode by email, if that's how you roll. You can stay connected between shows by joining me at Twitter and Facebook. And for members of the show, you can tune into the Members Only Raw feeds for audio and video content from the show, as well as a special bonus feed for stuff that never ends up making the final cut. And finally, links to the music and sources used in this and every episode are in the show notes on the blog, as well as embedded into the audio file of the enhanced edition of the show. It's very fancy, I know. So, coming to you from inside the Beltway and border, yet somehow outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast delivered to you every Wednesday and every weekend, thanks to the members and donors from bestoftheleft.com. Hi, my name is Mike. Can I have your ears for a real short rant? This message is totally unsolicited. In fact, the only way you could be hearing my message right now is because Jay heard this very same recording and gave me a little space. So, thanks, Jay. Hey, talk about penny-pinching in this economy. I've whittled down a normal middle-class existence to my current bare-bones income, and I do it on early Social Security retirement. That's 25% less than regular Social Security. $5 is a lot of money to me, but I consider it important enough to give those dollars to Jay every month to further his great program, the twice-weekly Best of the Left podcast. So if you could possibly squeeze a subscription into your budget, do it. Hey, if I can come up with a fiver every month, I think most people can. And if you can't, keep listening. Do those free things that Jay asks you to do. And then subscribe when you can. Thanks.